In The Funeral of a Great Myth, C.S. Lewis writes, The drama of the myth of evolution is preceded by the most austere of all preludes, the infinite void and matter endlessly, aimlessly moving to bring forth it knows not what. Then, by some millionth, millionth chance, what tragic irony, the conditions at one point of space and time bubble up into that tiny fermentation which we call organic life. At first, everything seems to be against the infant hero of our drama, just as everything always was against the seventh son or the ill-used stepdaughter in a fairy tale. But life somehow wins through, with incalculable sufferings, against all but insuperable obstacles it spreads, it breeds, it complicates itself. From the amoeba up to the reptile, up to the mammal, life, here comes the first climax, wantons as in her prime. This is the age of the monsters. Dragons prowl the earth, devour one another, and die. Then the irresistible theme of the younger son or the ugly duckling is repeated. As the weak, tiny spark of life herself began amidst the beasts that are far larger and stronger than he, there comes forth a little naked, shivering, cowering biped, shuffling, not yet fully erect, promising nothing. The product of another millionth, millionth, chance. His name in this myth is Man. Elsewhere, he has been the young Beowulf, whom men at first thought a dastard, or the stripling David armed only with a sling against a mail-clad Goliath, or, or a Jack the Giant Killer himself. He thrives. He begins killing his giants. He becomes the caveman with his flints and his club, muttering and growling over his enemy's bones, almost a brute and yet somehow able to invent art, pottery, language, weapons, cookery, and nearly everything else. His name in another story is Robinson Crusoe. Dragging his screaming mate by her hair, I do not know exactly why, tearing his children to pieces in fierce jealousy until they're old enough to tear him, and cowering before the terrible gods whom he has invented in his own image. But these were only the growing pains. In the next act, he has become true man. He learns to master nature. Science arises and dissipates the superstitions of his infancy. More and more, he becomes the controller of his own fate, passing hastily over the historical period. In it, the upward and onward movement gets in places a little indistinct, but it is mere nothing by the timescale we're using. We follow our hero on into the future. We see him in the last act, though not the last scene of this great mystery. A race of demigods now rule the planet, in some versions the galaxy. Eugenics have made certain that only demigods will now be born. Psychoanalysis that none of them shall lose or smirch his divinity. Economics that they shall have to hand all that demigods require. Man has ascended his throne. Man has become God. All is a blaze of glory. In the best versions of this story, the last scene reverses all. Dusk steals darkly over the gods. All this time, nature, the old enemy who only seemed to be defeated, has been gnawing away silently, unceasingly, out of the reach of human power. The sun will cool. All suns will cool. The whole universe will run down. Life, every form of life, will be banished without hope of return from every cubic inch of infinite space. All ends in nothingness. Universal darkness covers all. True to the shape of Elizabethan tragedy, the hero has swiftly fallen from the glory from which he slowly climbed to bring us to the end, not of a story, but of all possible stories.
Welcome to Lesser Known Lewis, where two friends and C.S. Lewis fans explore his lesser known works. I'm Sean. And I'm Jordan. Join us for season three on metaphor and myth, where Lewis's writings on language, imagination, and storytelling will help us come to see, know, and taste reality more deeply. All right, welcome back, everyone, to Lesser Known Lewis. Today we're talking about the essay, The Funeral of a Great Myth. And today I have with me a wonderful guest that we are um, very honored to have, uh, Bethany, Dr. Bethany Soloretter. She is a lecturer in science and religion at the University of Edinburgh. And Dr. Bethany, welcome to our show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. And I'm so excited to talk a little bit about Lewis. Yeah, this will be fun. I know that you're not a Lewis expert, which is fine because neither am I and neither is Sean, our usual co-host. But you have a lot of expertise in some areas that Lewis is touching on here. And it's interesting because Lewis is not an expert in these areas either. But yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah, it's good to have you here for that. Thank you. So I know uh, very little about you, and but I do know two things that are very interesting to me anyway, which is that we are from the same province, which is Alberta. Yes. Yep. Well done. Where are you from in Alberta? Uh, I am in Lethbridge at the moment. Oh, okay. Excellent. Yeah. yeah, I've been here for about 10 years now. And where were you from in Alberta? I'm from Edmonton. Okay, the other end of the province, yeah. Yeah, Oilers and Elks. Uh huh. Oh, <laughs> hang on, my clock is gonna ring every half an hour. I will stop that's it okay. just okay, a second. Sure. Sorry about that. No, that's okay. Yeah, the the Oilers and Elks. They Absolutely. um, they're not my favorite teams, but they. <laughs> <laughs> I'll I'll allow it here. They're doing better. Well, the Elks are not. The Oilers are doing much better than my favorite team, which is the Canucks. Well, so. I have to say, I was back in Edmonton just a few weeks ago, and I watched mm-hmm. the Elks win their first home game in about you four did. years. Wow. So I was there for the event. I saw them win. It has happened. That's incredible. <laughs> I think they hadn't, yeah, they hadn't won a game since they changed their name, so. Yeah, that is, that was something. I think it was the longest losing streak in professional sports history or something like that. (laughs) Um, Maybe you're the good luck charm. That's why they hadn't won. You had, you weren't there for any of those. Well, my parents also hadn't been back since uh, Mm. they'd started losing. So I'm blaming my Mm -hmm. parents and and saying that it's, it's actually their, uh, being there that made the difference. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, well, the other thing that I know about you is that we attended the same camp in central Alberta when we were younger. I don't know that we were there at the same time, but um, you mentioned on the Pints with Jack episode, I heard you on that you uh, attended a Christian riding camp. And I thought, how many Christian riding camps in Alberta could there be? <laughs> but apparently there's a couple because you said you went to a number of them. Yeah, well, I was mostly at um, Brightwood Youth Ranch and then Birch Bay Ranch. Wow. So it depends whether you're going west or east from Edmonton. Yeah, (laughs) that's awesome. Well, yeah, I was at Circle Square Ranch, which is more, I guess, south of Edmonton. Yeah, that's right. So, yes, I've been there there as well. 
So, yeah. Right. Well, other than those um, very important things about yourself, is there anything else you'd like to tell our listeners about yourself? Yeah, I uh, study and have the privilege of lecturing in science and religion. And I tend to focus on things that have to do with biology and earth history. So I looked at uh, what do we do about death uh, before the fall in the Christian tradition. So we know from the geological record that there has been animals eating each other, that there has been suffering, there have been parasites, and, and most importantly, there have been deaths for hundreds of millions of years before humans were around to mess the picture up. So how do we sort of deal with that? Um, and then I was looking a little bit at sort of how do our understandings about why God allows suffering, what's often called a theodicy, an explanation for, for why there's suffering in a world created by a good God, how does that actually affect how we suffer? So if we have a different story, if we have a different theology, does that actually change our ability to, to suffer well? Um, and then right now I'm doing, what do we do if we cannot stop climate change? Um, hmm. So I, I often say that I, I study whatever is grim and depressing. Uh, you know, I'll be right, right in the thick of it. That's great. And so given well, that we're doing something on a funeral, this is just perfect. Yes. Right up your alley then. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we always ask our guests if they have a lesser known work of Lewis that they would recommend to our listener. Do you have one for our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I pulled it out. It's the book, The Weight of Glory. And I realized that barely counts as a lesser known Lewis, uh, mm -hmm. because it's still probably one of his most popular uh, books in terms of the uh, collected essays. But there's a few in there, uh, particularly the essay called Transposition, that I just, I read it when I was about 15, probably when I was out at one of those camps. And then it has always just stayed with me as a really a really interesting way to think about the relationship with our body and our emotions um, and, and this sort of different way that God can uh, interrupt our, our days. That's really good. I was just listening to that one last week um, and not, not for the sake of the podcast, just because I needed to listen to it. I think in, for some of the reasons you're saying to remember the way our bodies are related to our spirituality even. So yeah, good recommendation. Well, we started off this season of our show with the essay, Is Theology Poetry? And in it, Lewis, I think he's trying to defend Christianity in its more poetic versions, maybe you could say. It's less theological versions of, of how we talk about Christianity, how, how it's okay that theology can be poetry. And he talks about it being okay that theology or Christianity is mythic and has this mythic quality to it. And in that essay, he he's defending, I think, from those who might want to make the claim that science is the only way to truth. And science is the only way to talk about truth and scientific language and literal language, because science is not mythic. And therefore, it's it's trustworthy. But he kind of he, he takes a, a digression in that essay 
to kind of say, are you kidding me? Uh, it's very mythic and it, it becomes very mythic, especially in his culture. And what's interesting to me there is that the way he saw science as um, the dominant myth of maybe we could say the social imagination or the popular imagination of his day, it still seems to be the way that people dominantly see the world is through this scientific lens and particularly through the evolutionary lens. And so this essay, The Funeral of a Great Myth, seems to have been written by Lewis to continue that that thought experiment or that mm -hmm. that argument that he kind of inserts into that essay is theology poetry. But I'd like to know um, from your perspective, why why was Lewis writing this essay and, and what was he attempting to do in it? Yeah, well, I think he's he's writing this essay in in the wake of really positivism that had grown at the end of the 19th and early 20th century, where people had said, you know, for all of human history, we were in the dark ages, we were wandering around, and yet for the last 400 years, we have been building through science our knowledge to the point where we basically know everything and what we do know, we can know with absolute certainty. And he's responding against that. And he's saying, no, 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 no. <laughs> you know, that's not how science works. It doesn't um, work with absolute facts. It's actually changing all the time. And in, in what, it, what it talks about is not the way that people actually receive it. So people, people had a myth of, I'll call it progress, uh, he calls it development. And he's saying that long preceded the sciences people have now attached to it. And so you have a myth of progress in the 19th century and people find evolution. Evolution, you know, pops up in that context and people say, ah, yes, here's the absolute fact to support what we already knew to be true about the world. So after placing uh, the idea of sort of this development or the evolutionary myth in that context, he then goes on to say, uh, he does a little bit of his sort of apologetics around knowledge. And he says, but actually this undercuts itself because as soon as you say that we have evolved, that we're, we're beings who have come about by accidental chance through this process of natural selection, um, then you have no reason to trust your reason because your reason was never meant to find truth. Your reason was to help you survive, reproduce, and uh, get on in the world in this evolutionary journey. It, 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 there's no reason to trust it when it then tells you that evolution is the way you got here, right? And so the whole, the whole setting up of the myth um, can be undercut by the fact that our rationality is under threat by evolution itself, or so Lewis claims. Right, yes. <laughs> and then, uh, and then he, he goes on at, at the end to basically talk about the difference between sort of for the, for the scientist, 
evolution is simply this biological theorem. It just talks about organic life and the way that it changes. And it's a theory that will be replaced by other theories. Uh, but myth has, has no such reservations. It's going to capture everything. And so everything is always getting better. It can only get better. It can never get worse, which of course is not true of various biological things that we know of. And, um, and so, and so he's saying, you know, this, this myth, uh, is simply wrong. It doesn't, it doesn't account for the world as we see it. And we have to move on from it. Yeah. So he calls, he calls the myth Wellsianity at first, because he says it, Mm -hmm. it, uh, is well represented and maybe, um, popularized by H.G. Wells in his writing. But perhaps for our day, we could call it Disneyanity or something because <laughs> Star Trekianity. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> the myth is popularized in all sorts of um, uh, fictional TV and movies. And, and Lewis even mentions that Walt Disney uh, has captured this myth and, and is using it. Yeah. Which, in my this is kind of embarrassing to say, but I had this moment of realizing that Lewis and Walt Disney are, were around at the same time. And then I thought, well, yeah, of course they are. But for some reason, Lewis is in a different <laughs> time frame than Walt Disney. But he also says that the myth he's referring to is uh, evolution or maybe evolutionism and developmentalism. What does he mean by calling evolutionism a myth? Because again, I think in in our day and age in common speech, we might we might call something a myth to say it's not true, and that's perhaps the yeah. defense uh, that Christians find themselves in when people say Christianity's a myth, and what they mean is Christianity's not true; it's just a story. But that's not what Lewis means when he's saying evolution is a myth, not necessarily anyway. But what does he mean? Yeah, so he probably means three things. By it. So the first he's going to say is that it's an overarching story that explains our place here on Earth, right? And so he says, you know, just like the the Ring of Nibelung starts with darkness, ends up with heroes, and then falls into darkness again. So we start with you know the Big Bang, and it and it progresses to us godlike figures. But the heat death of the universe is going to take over again and pull it away. In the second sense, I think he means by it something like it becomes an explanation that works for everything. So why are trains better than they used to be? Because of evolution. Uh, why are uh, our, why is our culture better than it used to be? Because of evolution. Why are we better than our parents? Yeah. Because of evolution. Why are you know there are many species because of evolution? And he's saying, well, there's actually one real way that the word should be used, which is of why there are many species. All these other ways are a stretching of its meaning to kind of encapsulate much more of of the way we think about life in particular than it probably should. And so, um, and, and Darwin had the same concerns. When he started seeing the way people were using his theory, he was going, oh, no, no, no. I didn't mean that. That no, I didn't. I'm not for some of the things like eugenics and mm. you know the ways that it had been used to support slavery, for example. And um, he was really opposed to. And so 
uh, he was worried about that too. But I do think that there are hints that Lewis is also meaning it in the third way as something that's not true. Mm. And so I'm going to quote the last two, um, the last two sentences where he says, for my own part, though I believe it, this myth of evolution no longer, I shall always enjoy it as I enjoy other myths. I shall keep my caveman where I keep Balder and Helen and the Argonauts and there often revisit him. So there he's, he's saying it's, it's a false story about the world that's enjoyable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So do you think, cause I was wondering that he, he wouldn't say that myths are necessarily false, but is he saying that because evolution is a myth, it's false or or in this case, the myth of evolution is not true to the world we live in. Whereas, yeah, I yeah. think he's saying, yeah, the 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 myth of evolution is not true for the world we live in when it gets expanded beyond its specific scientific meaning, in which it is a well verified theory, um, which is which is itself its whole own nomenclature its own jargon which yeah. means very specific things you know theory isn't an educated guess it's a highly verified um organizing idea that organizes various biological facts so we can we can get into that we don't need to um but he he does sort of uh play as well now i mean he and uh tolkien are known for calling Christianity, the true myth, you know? And so I think the very fact that they're having to put true before myth means that he is at least playing with the common idea that myth is not true. And so the Christian one has to be specified as, as true myth. Mm, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the way that he, he differs the biological theory from the myth of evolution, yeah. I, I really liked how he he said it, and he says it a couple times in the essay that the one is a theory about changes, whereas the myth is an imaginative uh, telling about improvements. And that's that's just a paraphrase. I should have the quote somewhere, but <laughs> um, yeah. So he says evolution is a theory about changes. In the myth, it's a fact about improvements. Yeah. Yeah. What do you make of that that quote from Lewis? Yeah, I think it's a really I think it's a really good one. Um, for 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 one thing, uh, the idea that everything is an improvement uh, is highly questionable. You know. Yeah. So um, I've actually just been working on an essay on is there progress in theology okay. and you know, everybody else in, in the edited volume has been like, yes. And I've been like, no, <laughs> <laughs> because, because uh, improvement depends on the frame we're measuring it in. Sure. So we can say, okay, we used to have horse carts. Now we have Harrier jets. Clearly that's an improvement except that horse carts can kill a whole lot less people than Harrier jets. You know, the Harrier jet goes faster, but it can rain down death on thousands of people who have no fighting chance against it, right? So yeah. it's unjust, whereas the horse cart is just. Um, our use of fossil fuels has thrown off the, the climate. So 
have we been uh, improving or have we been cutting off the branch we're sitting on? Yeah. And I'm, I'm not anti-science. I'm not anti-technology. I'm just saying that we, we tend to think every change is, is, is an improvement. Um, what's interesting about evolution is actually it has several different pathways. So as, as he points out, you know, that um, there is for every uh, point that there is uh, an improvement in evolution, he's quoting a guy, JBS Haldane, who says for sort of every case of improvement, there are 10 of degeneration. And I'm not really sure that that is true, but what we do have is we have things that don't have sight that gain sight, but you have other creatures who had sight who will lose it, mm, like fish mm-hmm, in caves, mm-hmm. right? You have improvement in the life cycle of a parasite. Is that an improvement or is that kind of a horrible digression? Yeah. Um, you also have things that just don't change, things like alligators that have had basically the same body form and lived in basically the same way for 100 million years. So evolution doesn't necessarily have a, a, a uni- universal one-way direction to it. Right. Um, and so there's lots of debate over whether there's you know, any sort of directionality at all in evolution, um, which might get us into another, another story as well. <laughs> but uh, I, do, I do think that when Lewis says sort of in science, evolution is a theory about changes in the myth it's a fact about improvements is a wonderful fruition quote yeah yeah it is good and it helped me see as someone who i mean i i I took science in high school but that was pretty much the last time so i'm very much not a a scientist uh in any regard but looking theologically at things and and seeing i always felt with with evolution that um because coming from a very conservative Christian upbringing, a lot of people will assume that as an educated Christian, I must uh, be against evolution. And mm-hmm. and again, not really having studied it, I go, I actually don't think that I'm against the scientific theory of evolution. I don't see that it contradicts mm-hmm. scripture as someone who's studied scripture. But there's something about it this whole time I'm going, but there's still something about it I don't seem to agree with. And I think that that line from Lewis really helps me helps me see what it is. It's not that I disagree with the scientific theory of changes, but that I disagree with the myth that it maybe becomes extrapolated into um, a fact about improvement. And so that, yeah. that was helpful for me. Yeah. And I think, I think uh, pulling those two things apart actually help give science back to the Christian, mm. because then we can see it's not, it's not in conflict with the kind of claims that God makes on our lives. It's not, uh, it doesn't stand in tension with, with the Christian story. It's simply telling us um, a little bit about our history, which is, which is a really great thing. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's like looking at a map. Yep, yeah, and and as Christians, we are, you know, it, it gets said that all truth is God's truth, and and understanding, trying to figure out, really, what's going on in this world, 
through the means available to us. And by that, I mean our ability to observe things. That should be a, a Christian passion to, to see what God mm-hmm. has done in this world in the past and, and see what he's doing at the present and do so by whatever means of observation we have available to us. Um, seems like a Christian idea to me. So it's a shame that Christian Christianity, religion, and science get pitted against each other. Um, and, and a lot of yeah, the reason, yeah, a lot of the reason seems to come down to, starts with this uh, theory of evolution and what it has become. Yeah, yeah. The, the idea that science is the only thing that can tell us the real truth about the world and about our lives um, is, is one way to express it. And then uh, ironically, uh, evangelical readings of the Bible since the sort of late 19th century have become increasingly, I'm going to say scientific, uh-huh. have become increasingly modernist, yeah. where the only way the Bible can be true is if it's scientific, because evangelicals have listened and have believed that myth, uh-huh. you know, so by saying science tells us lots of important things about the world. It's reasonably certain about several things it tells us. It's less certain about others. We can talk about that. Um, But it's not the only way of knowing truth about the world. We can free the Bible from this horrific burden we've placed upon it to be scientific in all its statements. Yeah. I mean, what a terrible thing to do to poetry. Yeah. What a terrible thing to do to parables. What a terrible thing to do to the apocalyptic, mm, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and so we can release the Bible and read the Bible with, with new um, just appreciation and, and vigor mm-hmm. once, once we can separate these two out. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I have friends who have, I mean, the, the popular word for it is deconstructed their faith. Uh, they came from evangelical backgrounds, and then when they were faced with, you know, what science is saying about any number of things, they then decided that they don't believe the Bible because the Bible is not scientifically accurate. And mm-hmm. what was interesting to me there was that... Um, they held the Bible to a standard that wasn't intended, that it wasn't trying to meet. And yeah. I think, yeah. I, I'm not sure if it's N.T. Wright or where I'm getting this from, but someone someone said that one of the rules of biblical interpretation is is to let the Bible be the Bible. And yeah. read, it, <laughs> read it for what it's trying to tell you and not what you're trying to yeah. get from it. And that... And that is part of why I'm slightly annoyed by Lewis okay. when he does this quick apologetic move in the middle yeah. about saying, oh, unless reason has developed to uh, to tell absolute truth, then we can't trust it at all. That's ludicrous. And he's, he's absolutely wrong about that. That's hmm. like saying, you know, unless my fingers had evolved specifically to play a violin, I could not play a violin. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> you know? No, of course not. It can, my fingers could do all sorts of things uh, that they were not specifically evolved to do. They, they are tools, and rationality is, is, is a tool that has many different applications. Now, will it tell us the whole unvarnished truth without bias, without limitation? No, of course not. But can we largely trust it? Absolutely, we can. Yeah. 
you know, and so, so uh, I, w- I would really push back at, at Lewis at that, at that little point where he's trying to make this apologetic move to say, oh, this argument just, you know, can't follow it, undercut itself. Yeah. No, it really doesn't. <laughs> Unless you're holding science to an unreasonable standard as well, or, or reason to an unreasonable standard. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm glad you said that, because I was wondering what you thought of that argument. It's a quite it's quite a famous argument that he uses over and over again, um, I think particularly yeah. in the book Miracles, and then got some good pushback on it. Um, from, yeah, Elizabeth Anscombe, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And so it was funny, because I when I first read that, I had read that he had changed one of the chapters, but I didn't know which one. Mm -hmm. And so I read, I think it's chapter four, where he's making this argument. And even in the changed version, Mm -hmm. I was fuming. Because he's (laughs) like, nobody would would bite this bullet. I'm like, yes, they would, and they do, and they have. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Next week, Jordan will be continuing his conversation with Dr. Bethany Soleretter on the funeral of a great myth, looking at why Lewis appreciated this myth, but ultimately why he thought it was dead and time to be put away. They will discuss where they see this myth continuing to be at work in our own day and the practical implications of what Lewis says. Many thanks go out to Terry and David, who are our top-tier patrons. If you would like to support our show as well, You can help us make lesser-known works of Lewis more well-known by leaving a rating and review of our podcast, or by supporting us on Patreon.com, or sending us an encouraging message on our Instagram or Facebook pages. Until next week, we pray that you would come to see the true myth of Jesus Christ more clearly so that you, like Lewis, can put to death the untrue myths of the world, which St. Paul called hollow and deceptive philosophies that Christ has disarmed and triumphed over by his work on the cross.